Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Okay, the writers of the courtroom drama that played out this week would probably get fired for how outrageous the script is. In the New York scene, the former president got hit with a $350 million civil fraud judgment, and the start of his first criminal trial got circled on the calendar. In the Georgia scene, playing out the same day, the Fulton County District Attorney defended herself against allegations of an improper relationship with another prosecutor. The law firm of Weissman and Katiel is standing by to talk about that massive fine for Trump, and the author of a book at the center of that testimony in Georgia is going to join me as well. Also today, the week started with Trump encouraging Russia to do whatever the hell they want, and it ended with Vladimir Putin's top political opponent turning up dead. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton dealt with the Russian dictator on Trump's behalf, and he's going to join me live in just a few minutes. And later, when Senator LaFonza Butler got appointed to fill Dianne Feinstein's seat, she instantly became one of the most interesting people in Washington. But she hasn't done a major sit-down interview until now. a singular myth that helped launch Donald Trump's political career, a myth that lent him an air of legitimacy. Somehow, his brand of snake oil salesman separated him from other political outsiders, other conspiracy theorists, and your basic loud guy at the end of the bar running his mouth. The myth, of course, was that Donald Trump was a successful, self-made New York businessman, responsible for big buildings, big profits, and big success. I am a business person building buildings and doing things all over the world, and I'm doing things and built a great company. I built a great company. Let me tell you, folks, I built a great company, unbelievable company. My company has never been stronger. It's never been better. It is one great company. I built a massive company, a great company. I built a phenomenal company. And if we could run our country the way I've run my company, we would have a country that you would be so proud of. There's no question. The self-made billionaire narrative is a nice story. But for anyone who actually paid attention to Donald Trump's years in business, it's clear what he actually was, and frankly still is today, a con man and a grifter who benefited enormously from his father's wealth and only stayed relevant due to his insatiable desire to be in the spotlight. For years, he slapped his name on overpriced products all over the place, Trump steaks, Trump water, and even the Trump board game. And that long-held business strategy continued yesterday when he pushed his, not making this up, official sneaker at SneakerCon. In addition to slapping his name on overpriced merchandise all over the place, it's also public knowledge that Trump stiffed contractors and refused to pay workers, that he had to pay $25 million to settle the lawsuit over his bogus Trump university grift, and that he was forced to close his own charitable foundation, charitable that is, and pay $2 million for repeatedly misusing funds for his own interests. But this week, the story of Donald Trump, the fraudster, got a substantial new chapter. Because on Friday, a judge ordered him to pay more than $350 million in damages, plus interest, a lot of money, and barred Trump from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation for three years. 
And let's just say the Trump world didn't take that so well. My father built the skyline of New York City. And this is the thanks he gets. Everyone's screaming about Russia, Russia, Russia. But the reality is what we complain about in Russia is happening right here in the United States. The damages and restitution should go to Donald Trump. Unless the appeals process in New York comes to the rescue, New York has become a legal banana republic. If we're not successful, New York State is gone. People are moving out of New York State. And because of this, they're going to move out at a much faster rate. Well, he didn't build the New York skyline, and I also feel fairly confident that New York State will still be around if the judgment survives Trump's appeal. But what this decision paints on Trump is that the, the truth that anyone who's been watching closely has known for decades, that Donald Trump is a fraud. That's his entire story for decades. Take a listen to something that New York Attorney General Letitia James said in her remarks on Friday. The scale and the scope of Donald Trump's fraud is staggering. And so, too, is his ego and his belief that the rules do not apply to him. Today, we are holding Donald Trump accountable. We are holding him accountable for lying, cheating, and a lack of contrition, and for flouting the rules that all of us must play by. A.J. James was, of course, talking about her civil fraud case against Trump and his company. But her words could have easily applied to other cases Trump is still facing because fraud is at the core of each of them. And she's right when she says Donald Trump doesn't think he should be held accountable for his lies and actions. We've known that for a very long time. But what this new massive penalty this week hammers home is that Donald Trump has always been a fraud and he's always been a cheat. We had no choice but to start today, and we're thrilled to, with our in-house law firm, everybody's favorite legal eagles, Neil Katyal is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General, Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI, and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. So, Neil, I want to start there a little bit, because what struck me is that if you look at these cases, from the New York criminal case to Georgia to special counsel Jack Smith's dual case, they all have this one common thing, one thing in common, fraud. And I was struck, of course, as I just played by the AG's comments, which, again, could be applied anywhere. But if you're a prosecutor, how do you look at kind of this theme of grifting and fraud over the course of decades and in multiple cases? Yeah. So first, I just wanted to make a comment about what Don Jr. said, equivocating these judgments to what happens in Russia. No, in Russia, they literally execute political opponents. The Trumps can't even condemn that. And indeed, Trump is coming into court trying to seek absolute immunity so that he as president could, as he said, uh, allow the execution of his political opponents. Mm. And so to me, the theme, Jen, is not just fraud, which is a common theme throughout all of these different cases, but also this idea of impunity, that he is above the law. He goes into court. He's been saying this even before he became president in 2016. He committed various crimes. He said, well, you couldn't prosecute me because I'm now sitting president and in office. And then when he's impeached, says, you know, you have to prosecute me. You can't just impeach me. And then when he leaves his office as president, he says, well, you can't president you can't prosecute me because you didn't fully impeach me i mean the whole thing is just a house of cards at every turn it's about saying i donald trump am above the law and that's why this decision i think was so important this week by judge Egmeron mm-hmm. because it attacks one of the things trump is most proud of his supposed business acumen and so the judgment's not just a blow to his business and to his wallet 
it's a blow to his ego and it's a blow to his claim that he's above the law. And such a good point on Putin. Trump has an affinity for Putin. I, this has been on my mind, and I'm going to be talking about it later in the show. Andrew, let me let me go to you here, because there's a lot of practical questions here. Uh, you know, obviously, Trump now owes a lot of money, I think it's fair to say. He has, if I understand it correctly, but you'll correct me if I'm in, misstating, 30 days about. So what happens in that time period it, when, when he gets to 30 days? If he appeals, what percentage does he have to pay? Basically, what does it look like over the next couple of weeks? Sure. Um, so there's a about $350 million judgment. As you said, there's also interest. That's about another $100 million. He also owes about $90 million to E. Jean Carroll for sexual assault and repeated defamation. So we're now actually talking about some real money for anybody. Um, so add that all up. And what mm-hmm. he has to do is he gets to appeal both the federal E. Jean Carroll case for that's about 90 million. He gets to appeal, um, which is part of our process, the um, judgment that just came out on Friday. However, what is required is in 30 days of the Judge and Gorin decision, he has to either pay the money or he has to the post total. a bond. Yeah, the total. And so that is going to be difficult because he has loans outstanding to, like, for instance, Deutsche Bank. When you take a loan out in his situation, he gave a personal guarantee. There are liens on his property. Mm -hmm. Um, There usually are commitments he has to make in terms of cash reserves. So in other words, there's a lot of encumbered assets. So he needs to either figure out how he's going to pay that or find a bond company that's willing for a fee to put the money up. And the reason, by the way, is clear. It's like this is the court saying, you know, if you want to appeal, that's fine, but we need to protect the plaintiffs because mm-hmm. while you're appealing, there has to be a pool of money available to them. And then one just quick comment um, is the, EG, the sort of decisions that have come down are quite interesting because you have somebody who's saying, trust me to run the country mm-hmm. for four years, but you have Judge Ngoran, as you've said, Jen, saying, I don't trust you to run your own company in New York for three years, and I'm going to require two independent monitors to oversee you. And this is the same person who's saying, trust me to run the country. That's it's it's quite an important point. What he did in the past is really telling for how he governed and how he would govern in the future. Let me ask you, Neil, Andrew just referenced this. I mean, he owes we, we've been talking, of course, a lot about the civil judgment that came out um, Friday. But of course, he does owe almost 90 million dollars in the E.G. and Carroll case. He promised to appeal. He hasn't notably appealed yet. What do you make of that? Oh, and no doubt he will appeal, Jen. I mean, the delay is always his tactic, and so he's going to try and do that. But Andrew's exactly right. Even if he files these two appeals, he's going to be required to post a bond for almost a half a billion dollars. And maybe Trump thinks that he can get Mexico to pay for it. I don't know. But I think it's going to be incredibly difficult, particularly because Judge Angoran's order blocks him from having any dealings with any new any New York licensed bank, which is almost every bank in the United States. So any any serious bank. Now there, you know, there may be rich other people, maybe people in other countries mm-hmm. that want to lend him that money to pay the judgment, but it's going to be a very difficult thing for him. 
to, to pay. I mean, no question. The other piece of news, this is a big legal leak. I'm sure you are both feeling that with lack of sleep and too much coffee, for sure. But the other big piece of news this week is, of course, there's a, now a, a date uh, circled on the calendar for the first criminal trial. Um, Trump's New York criminal trial will begin March 25th. I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of how we refer to this case, because we often shorthand it. It's a little edgier, I suppose, as the hush money case, right? It's salacious sounding. It's kind of been short, short handed that way. But it's really about election interference. And there's, of course, a lot of legal um, components of this. So, Andrew, I wanted to ask you just how people should understand the seriousness of the case, the case itself. Should we stop calling it the hush money case? What's your take? Yeah, so I think it's really important to think about that that moniker, how one sort of shorthands it. Um, I think when I think about it, I don't think it's hush money. First of all, that's not illegal. Um, that's the means by which Donald Trump was keeping information from the 2016 electorate. Um, he did not want it out into the mainstream. Um, mm -hmm. And so he was using hush money. Um, and then the crime is that to do that, he was falsifying business records. I think of it in the same way when we were thinking about the first uh, impeachment, which involved the threats and the withholding mm. of funds to President Zelensky in Ukraine, you didn't call it the congressional funds um, case. That was mm -hmm. really a case about wanting to have an investigation into Joe Biden and his son and to not tell the American public that he essentially bought the investigation mm -hmm. um, by withholding congressional funds. That was a form of election um, fraud. And I think of it the same way. And that is, I think, how Alvin Bragg has consistently talked about it. So I think it sort of belittles the case just to say yeah. hush money. But whatever you call it, you know, this is, I think it's a serious case. One of the things that um, Judge Mershan, who's overseeing it, decided this week in a decision is he, he said these are serious felony charges. He disagreed with the defense uh, claim by Donald Trump that these are not serious. Judge Mershon joined Judge Hellerstein, a federal judge who said exactly the same thing in rejecting Donald Trump's effort to take the case federal, saying, no, it stays in state court and these are serious federal charges. Having said that, it is up to the state to prove each and every one of these crimes mm. beyond a reasonable doubt. And of course, at trial, Donald Trump will be presumed innocent. But I think, Jen, you're right to think about how we talk about the case. We'll work on that. Maybe I'll come back with a few thoughts on it in the next few weeks. Neil Katyal and Andrew Weissman, thank you as always uh, for all of your wisdom. And coming up, far too many leading Republicans have once again weirdly embraced the messaging of Vladimir Putin during a week when his leading opponent, Alexei Navalny, died in jail. Trump's former National Security Advisor John Bolton will join me to weigh in on that. But first, one specific book was referenced repeatedly, pretty out of context, during Fannie Willis's testimony in Fulton County this week. Michael Isikoff wrote that book about the attempt to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia, and he joins me after a quick break. We'll be right back. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. 
Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. So this week, I was reminded of the second seasons of True Detective and Lost. You, you guys know the ones where it felt kind of like the writers lost the plot. And this week in Fulton County, Georgia, a lot of people lost the plot because the original premise remains the most important. So maybe it's time for a bit of a refresher, a quick one, I promise, because this story has a few parts. So bear with me here. Part one, Donald Trump attempted to overthrow an election and he was on tape caught doing it. Part two, District Attorney Fonnie Willis started investigating, eventually presented the evidence she found to a grand jury. Part three is that grand jury decided the evidence was strong enough to indict 19 people, including Donald Trump. Those 19 people were booked in the Fulton County Jail. Part four, some of those 19 defendants end up pleading guilty. And that is in part how we end up landing on part five, an attempt by one of the remaining defendants to derail the case based on allegations of an improper relationship between Fonnie Willis and a lead prosecutor she hired to work with her team, Nathan Wade. And these allegations sparked an absolutely draw-dropping day of testimony this week from Willis herself. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. That kind of sums up. That kind of sums it up. Fonnie Willis was on the witness stand because of a motion filed by former Trump White House aide Michael Roman. He's trying to paint her relationship with Wade as a conflict of interest to eventually force Willis off the case. Will that happen? We don't know. Is all of this a huge distraction? Of course it is. But it's important to remember that none of what happened in part five changes anything about parts one through four. Joining me now is investigative journalist Michael Isikoff. He's the co-author of a new book about the Georgia case, which is called Find Me the Votes, a hard-charging Georgia prosecutor, a rogue president, and the plot to steal an American election. And it somehow became a focal point of this week's hearing, which is so... So let me just start there, because it, it was used in the hearing repeatedly. Some of it, and I've heard you say, is a bit out of context. So give us the... Uh, give us the context of okay. actually what, how you talk about her in the book. Sure. A surreal moment. I mean, the uh, lawyers for Michael Roman and the other Trump defendants are trying to prove that there was some sort of corrupt bargain between Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade to give him the job so he, Nathan Wade, can take her on lavish vacations. And to sort of promote that case or to make that case, they pointed to a passage in her book where we talk about the financial troubles that Fonnie Willis was having after she ran for a judgeship in 2018. Mm -hmm. They said what this showed was that she was financially destitute when she became DA. And so therefore, their theory somehow makes sense. She's impoverished and she needs the, you know, she needs a source of somebody to take her around the world. In fact, if they read the passage a little more closely, we were talking about her financial straits in 2018. After that, she got a, a judgeship, but paid a six-figure salary. Her law practice picked up, and at the time she ran, uh, she ran for DA. She was actually fairly okay. But had they, but they didn't read the next few Context paragraphs so of the book that it, totally undercut. 
the point they were trying to make. It's context is so important. Now, you yes. interviewed her a number of times. Yes. You and your, you and your co-author, Dan Clayman. Yeah. Were you surprised? I guess it's hard to predict all sides that she kind of became the target of this. Yeah. I mean, she's a well-known, um, tough prosecutor. She's also a black woman. Right. What? Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I think we can say it was stupid of her to get into this relationship with Nathan Wade. If for no other reason, it gave ammunition to critics and the defendants to uh, to make hay of that. But you know, when you cut through it, I mean, the whole argument is so strained. I mean, the premise is that there was a corrupt bargain between Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade to hire him. And then so he could take her on vacations. And therefore, she had a vested interest in keeping the case going. Now, there's absolutely no evidence of that. There's no evidence that the relationship between Wade and Willis in any way prejudiced, prejudiced Michael Roman or the rights of any of the other defendants. I mean, or what absolutely the court case none. Is actually about, yeah, yeah. Needless is- to say, and a complete distraction from the rather serious charges here. And look, we make the argument in the book that the Georgia case is, in some ways, the most significant case. Yeah. Trump did what he. Trump didn't do what he did by on his own. Mm-hmm. He had an army of Confederates, co-conspirators, you know, from Rudy Giuliani to Mark Meadows to John Eastman. All of them are indicted as part of a conspiracy case. This is the only conspiracy case that touches on all the people who were involved in Trump's efforts to overturn the election. You chose to write about Georgia because it sounds like it was just such a web of things. There are so many details in this book, which is why it's important to talk about them and not the sidebar. You have quite a story about Jordan Fuchs in there. So so tell me a little bit about that. This is like, I think, one of the most incredible stories of the whole 2020 election battle. Here's this young political aide, mm-hmm. um, political consultant, 30 years old. You were a young political aide mm-hmm. at one time who on her own makes this unira- unilateral spur of the moment decision to tape the phone call that Trump is having with Raffensperger. Why? Because Raffensperger is her boss. She knows the dangers of getting into a conversation with Donald Trump, who was suing Raffensperger at the time, how he would, you know, distort the conversation. And you never know if she's on the phone call. She was on the phone call the whole time. Mm-hmm. She puts herself on mute, but she tapes the call. Mm. I mean, a pretty, you know, argue, and, and as a result, we have the most compelling evidence of Trump's pressure on Raffensperger, on state officials to uh, alter the results, the, the election results. You know, we call it arguably the most, the gutsiest and most consequential act of the entire post-election battle. And nobody knew it. This young woman who did it on her own. It's remarkable. Um, We have to let you go, which I'm so bummed about, because I could ask you 100 more (laughs) questions. lots more. But this book is so good. It has so many stories. There's a Lindsey Graham one I'm going to give a tease on that everybody should look up because it's amazing. Michael Escoff, thank you so much for joining me. And we'll look forward to having you back on Talk More About This. I really appreciate it. Coming up, Alexei Navalny's death capped a week in which Republican appeasement of Vladimir Putin reached a whole new level. I've got a few thoughts to share about that. Plus, former National Security Advisor John Bolton has spent a fair amount of time with Putin and with Donald Trump, so it's a good thing he's standing by here in Washington. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Donald Trump and the MAGA wing of the Republican Party just cannot seem to quit Russian dictator Vladimir Putin. 
Remember, it was this time just last week when we were all talking about Trump encouraging Russia to attack our NATO allies. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. I want you to keep that sentence in mind as you follow me here. And after Trump said that, lots of Republicans rushed to his defense. Some even tried to rationalize Putin's aggression. We forced this issue. We kept forcing NATO all the way to Eastern Europe. And uh, Putin just got tired of it. You can tell Putin's on top of his game. They can't win. It's not going to happen. Somebody needs to negotiate. Donald Trump will have it over with in a matter of weeks. Ukraine can't win. Putin is on top of his game, says football coach turned United States senator and apparent Putin fanboy Tommy Tuberville. This week, House Republicans also officially spiked a bill that would have provided billions of dollars in funding for Ukraine at a time when Russia is gaining ground. So just to recap, we've got Donald Trump encouraging Russia to do whatever the hell they want. We've got a United States senator praising Putin for being on top of his game. And we've got House Republicans choking off crucial aid to the country Russia invaded. Oh, and I almost forgot. We've also got one of the most popular right-wing media personalities in the country parading around like Moscow, like some sort of deranged brand ambassador. How does Russia, a country we're told is a gas station with nuclear weapons, have a subway station that normal people use to get to work and home every single day that's nicer than anything in our country? All right. Here we go. So I guess you put in 10 rubles here and you get it back when you put the cart back. So it's free, but there's an incentive to return it and not just bring it to your homeless encampment. The low carb lifestyle has not swept Russia. Uh, thank heaven, because they, I mean, look at that. And this is Russian wine. It's from Crimea, which not only has the warm water naval base, but also is the source of most of the grapes uh, in this part of Russia for wine. Yes, that Crimea, which Russia illegally annexed from Ukraine. Apparently, Tucker likes their wine. Here's the thing. Everything I just mentioned happened before Friday, when the world learned that Vladimir Putin's main political rival, Alexei Navalny, had been found dead in a Russian penal colony. And anyone who knows anything about Russia knows that, of course, Vladimir Putin is most likely responsible. Of course, Donald Trump has had absolutely nothing, nothing to say about Navalny's death. He gave a two-hour speech last night, talked about all sorts of stuff, didn't say a single word about it. After all, he thinks Putin should do whatever the hell he wants. His words, not mine. But Trump has given us a clue about what he thinks he should be able to do to his political rivals in this country, much like his pal, Vladimir Putin. If a president of the United States does not have immunity, he'll be totally ineffective. See, Donald Trump doesn't just like Putin. He clearly does. He wants to be like Putin. His defenders in the Republican Party are all for it. Too many of them are. And you better believe Russia is watching all of this. Donald Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, is standing by here in Washington, and he joins me next.
here on MSNBC. We are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. At a time when Donald Trump and much of the Republican Party, too many in the Republican Party, are trying to imitate Vladimir Putin or looking the other way, his top political rival has just turned up dead. Can't think of anyone better to talk to than someone who sat face to face with Vladimir Putin himself on behalf of Trump himself. Joining me now is Donald Trump's former national security advisor, Ambassador John Bolton. So we, we were just talking about this during the break. I mean, this has been quite a week. You know, you start with Trump saying that he, Russia can do whatever they want as it relates to NATO countries. It continued with a complete standstill on aid to Ukraine, something they desperately need, given the progress Russia's made even over the weekend. It ended, of course, with the death of Alexei Navalny. And you've sat in a lot of these rooms, many of them. I just want to ask you sort of how does Putin, how does he consume what's happening here in the United States? Trump's words or lack of words, I should say, in some cases. Well, I think he sees things moving in his direction. And uh, he, he really uh, outdid himself in terms of disinformation a couple of days ago by a reporter asked, well, what do you think of Biden versus Trump? And he said, well, Biden's predictable and so on, I- implying he was endorsing what did you Biden. make of that when you heard that? It, it's a it's a clear disinformation effort. To, so to confuse give, people to give Trump the opportunity, which he was foolish enough to take to say, well, I thought that was actually a compliment to me. I mean, uh, if uh, if if Trump is elected, uh, there'll be celebrations in the Kremlin. There's no doubt about it, because Putin thinks that he is an easy mark. Easy, easy to manipulate. I mean, this week there was also some pretty big news about Trump having to pay now. I mean, it's $450 million from just this week um, with interest. You're familiar with how foreign capitals think about these things. Are you worried about Trump having all of these, this money he owes and being a target in that way of people like Putin and other foreign authoritarian or autocrats? Well, I think it's going to result in him having to liquidate some of his properties. I don't see where he's going to get the cash, although it's not really a near term problem. He'll appeal. He'll have to post a bond, of course. But uh, I, I think these are the things that really affect him uh, most immediately because this is his money. And let's face it, what Donald Trump cares about most of all is Donald Trump and particularly Donald Trump's money. But could foreign autocrats, I mean, they look and they target. You said he's a he's a good target. Could they look at him and think, ah, He's a good target. He owes tons of money. He's got to liquidate assets. He may not even have it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is one of the demonstrations why Trump really is not fit for office. He's he is consumed by these troubles. His family is consumed by them. And I think foreigners will try to take advantage of it one way or another. They, they may be doing it already. Uh, let me ask you just about Navalny, because Alexei Navalny is, uh, of course, a very prominent opposition leader. He has bravely been in jail. He spent 300 plus days in, in sort of almost an isolated, freezing cold cell. Democrats and Republicans, not enough Republicans, I will say, 
have spoken out. Nikki Haley has. Trump has been completely silent. He had a two hour speech yesterday, said nothing. What do you make of that? Well, heaven forbid he say anything critical of Vladimir Putin. Look, accidents don't happen in those kinds of Russian prison camps. Uh, when Navalny's mother asked to uh, take care of the body, uh, they refused to give it to her. And they told her that because they wanted to have an autopsy. They told her the cause of death was sudden death syndrome. Well, I, I'd sure like to know what that is. Maybe it means you're alive one minute and dead the next. I don't know what else it can mean. But, you know, uh, four years ago, when Navalny was uh, the victim of an attempted assassination by poisoning, uh, other people immediately condemned what was obviously the Kremlin's weapon of choice against its opponents, poisoning. Trump didn't comment on it, said he didn't have information uh, to, to, to judge. I mean, he's only the president of the United States at that point. So it's obviously part of a pattern. He simply doesn't want to criticize his friend Putin, because in Trump's mind, if he's got a good relationship with Putin, the U.S. has a good relationship with Russia. This is the kind of thing that, that uh, tells Putin that Trump simply doesn't know what he's doing. There has also been alarming news this week about Putin's reported efforts to put a nuclear weapon in space to target American satellites. There's not a ton we know about it exactly, but it, it did make some news this week. The ban on nuclear weapons in space was among the topics uh, that Putin said was on his agenda to discuss with Trump back in Helsinki. Now, that was in 2018. You were the national security advisor at the time. Trump did a lot of that one-on-one. -on -one. But was it a topic that came up or was discussed in any way? No, I don't believe so. You know, it's it, they say it's one on one, but there are always two interpreters, one for yeah. each side. And I will say that my staff immediately after the one on one ended, went to the U.S. interpreter and said, what did they talk about? Most of it was about Syria mm. uh, and Putin did most of the talking. So I consider that a victory. The less time Trump is actually saying anything to Vladimir Putin, that's a good thing. Nothing came out of it. We had a lunch uh, right after it. And uh, I'm, I'm confident nothing sensitive was discussed. There's no question. You've talked about this a fair amount. And I'm even familiar with this from my time in the national security world. Every country's watching what's happening globally. And I wanted to ask you about President Xi and how he is watching, say, the events of the past couple of weeks, where the dysfunction in Washington has meant that there's no funding currently moving forward and no clear path to support Ukraine. So Putin has kind of a fair free game there. Um, and they they have, of course, aggression that they are considering as it relates to Taiwan and other uh, other uh, territories in the region. How do they watch this? Do they think, oh, we're, we're safe from the U.S.? There's nothing that's going to happen here? No, they're, they're exuberant in Beijing. Remember, this aid package should include aid to Taiwan, which, uh, which can use it uh, uh, immediately if they could get their hands on it. Uh, th this is the sort of uh, Naval gazing that America sometimes gets into, which its foreign adversaries take advantage of. And in Beijing right now, they're looking at the war in Ukraine. They're looking at the uh, war in the Middle East and they're saying to themselves, you know, the uh, Biden's attention is diverted by two wars, a difficult presidential campaign. What should we be doing to take advantage of the United States? So I'm surprised, actually, we haven't seen more trouble along China's Indo-Pacific periphery. It may come. Uh, but, you know, looking at Donald Trump, the only question in my mind, if uh, Trump is reelected, is whether the bigger celebration will be in the Kremlin or in Beijing, because they, too, see Donald Trump as an easy mark. As an easy mark. Some of the biggest authoritarian dictators in the world see Trump as an easy mark. I think that's quite uh, a point for people to sit with. Ambassador John Bolton, thank you so much for joining me this Glad afternoon. Glad to be with you. Uh, coming up, LaFonza Butler has not done a major sit-down interview since she got to the Senate until our conversation this week. 
I can't tell you how excited I am about this one. We talked about a lot of issues. And just listen to what my friend Rachel Maddow said when she found out about this. We're back after this. I'm not going to inquire live on television how you got that interview, but I am going to buttonhole you the next time we are both in the same place. And I I'm going to make you tell me because I'm, I am very jealous. Less than three weeks after California Governor Gavin Newsom appointed LaFonza Butler to fill the late Dianne Feinstein Senate seat, Butler announced she would not be running in 2024. In a statement to her California constituents, she quoted Muhammad Ali, of course, saying, don't count the days, make the days count. And she is certainly doing just that. I sat down with Senator Butler earlier this week at Howard University to talk about her journey before, during and after Congress. February is, of course, Black History Month. There's only been three black women who have been in the Senate in history. Our country's been around a long time. So this is kind of, it's a startling small number. Sure. What are the biggest barriers, do you think? When you look at an incredible um, public servant like Mm -hmm. Stacey Abrams Mm -hmm. um, or Val Demings Mm -hmm. in Florida or Chief Justice Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, three incredible public servants, leaders who were willing to uh, put themselves out there to be evaluated and judged and interrogated. All of them fell short of becoming governor uh, or even achieving the the level of United States Senate. Mm -hmm. And so there remains barriers uh, around the, I think, the perception of black Mm -hmm. women and their uh, leadership. Uh, there remains barriers in terms of the stereotypes mm-hmm. uh, that are applied to black women. Uh, even in the U.S. Senate today, I feel like some colleagues apply those stereotypes to how, me. How have you experienced that? Um, you know, the you have such a great temperament. As if they expect what? That you're angry? Or <laughs> what is the expectation? Uh, that is an interesting question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you have, you know, you, you just have the right approach to being in the U.S. Senate. Uh, again, and I, I think it is potentially well intended. I, if I start with assuming no motivation mm. or, or, or ill intent, I think there's just a blindness no, to the stereotypes that are applied. Sometimes it's willful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a willful dismissal uh, of what black women bring to the table and the voices that we um, that we bring to every room. Uh, we make sure that we are not just in the room representing ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we bring our children, our communities, our PTA, our church uh, to every table. And sometimes those voices show up with the demand of the communities that we represent. But there there remains real barriers, and I experience some of them today. What did you say to your daughter when the governor called you and asked you to serve in the Senate? She said, well, would it mean that you're going to be gone more? Mm. I was like, yeah. She says, well, does it mean that you're going to always come back? I said, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, will you always work to keep me safe? Absolutely. And this role is a way for me to do that even bigger scale and not just you, but your classmates. She says, then you should do it. What a wise nine year old. Let's talk about Congress. I mean, because you are an insider now, but you're also an outsider. You have such an interesting perspective. And there was what I would consider a pretty horrible episode of dysfunction over the past couple of weeks where Republicans in 
Congress took a bipartisan agreement on the border and they tanked it for what were clearly political reasons. Talk to me a little bit about how you viewed what has happened over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, the, the activist in me, the advocate uh, in me, the, the person who is sort of taking long bus trips with community activists in the immigration um, spaces in Los Angeles, that part of me was very disappointed mm -hmm. in the agreement that was mm -hmm. reached. And the uh, senator uh, in, in me was, I sort of felt bad for Senator Langford. Mm -hmm. uh, I've spent a little bit of time with him, particularly on the plane, to mm -hmm. go to see, go to Senator Feinstein's funeral. Oh, wow. Interesting. Uh, did you know him before that? I did not know him before that. But to see how he embraced across party lines mm -hmm. on that plane going to that funeral service um made him made me more curious about him mm -hmm. and i have had you know exchanges with him and understand him to be conservative for sure mm -hmm. um but willing to engage meaningfully and on the substance and i think that's how he approached his um the, these negotiations you know it's I have been there for now a little bit over four months, mm -hmm. and I have seen a lot of how the inside works mm -hmm. uh, in a way that surprises me, disappoints me, um, frustrates me, angers me, um, but most importantly, I think um, fuels me mm -hmm. uh, to uh, really understand what my presence means in this moment. Uh, and how government truly can be a difference maker when we choose to work on behalf of the American people. I want to talk about the presidential race, of course, because <laughs> it is on everybody's <laughs> minds. When you hear people like Governor Nikki Haley say a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris, mm -hmm. I mean, I know what I hear. But what's most important <laughs> is what you hear when you hear her say that. I think that uh, Ambassador Haley is unfortunately um, uh, perpetuating the, the dog whistles of divisive politics uh, and, and, and frankly should be called on it. Uh, and my response to her is, yes, it is. Uh, and America has demonstrated that they are ready, uh, willing and able to support candidates who are experienced, who are qualified and who have the interest of the American people at heart. And that has been Vice President Harris at every turn. You're not running in 2024. Indeed. You've also made clear you are not endorsing anyone um, in the Senate race. So what can we expect from you next? I feel like my life has been one of service. Um, Marion Wright Edelman, who really inspires me and um, convinced me to serve on the board of the Children's Defense Fund, uh, once said to me that service is the rent you pay for living. And um, the life I have lived as a poor kid from a one stoplight town is a life that I know that I owe so much. And so service will always be a part of what I want to do and what exactly that looks like. I'm open to. Sounds like you could run for office in the future. That's what I'm hearing here. <laughs> I literally say to my daughter, never say never, honey. Never say um, never. Never say never. It is not a door that, that I have closed. It was never one that I thought would be opened for me. Um, and so now that it is open, uh, I think I have a responsibility to leave it open uh, for how it is that I can best continue to, to serve and to pay rent for the life that I've lived.
My thanks to Senator Butler for spending some time with me this week at Howard University. And we're going to post our full conversation on our MSNBC YouTube channel. I've got one more thing to tell you about before we go today. That's coming up after a quick break. We are already working on a big show for tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern. House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi will be here. I have so many things to ask her about as she returns from the Munich Security Conference, including her special moment with Yulia Navalny following her husband's death and her shout out from Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. And, and after Trump once again referenced E. Jean Carroll in a speech last night, her attorney, Sean Crowley, will weigh in on just how the far the former president could go before they bring him back to court again. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed.